Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the Humble Perspectives podcast with your host, Steve Humble. If I remember correctly, I was in the seventh grade when we had a special presentation at an assembly for our school. The speaker made predictions about what our lives would be like in the year 2000 because of new technological developments. He had a small jet engine which he started up. Wow, was that ever loud in the auditorium. He predicted that by 2000 we'd be flying around with jet packs on our backs and that we'd have cars which would fly too. I don't remember what he may have gotten right, but he was wrong on those points. Anyway, I didn't pay too much attention because I was convinced that Jesus would have returned by then. After all, the preachers said he would come within 40 years after the reestablishment of Israel as a nation, so he had to be back by 1988 at the latest. Uh, the preachers were wrong too. So also were those who predicted great worldwide disaster caused by com a computer problem in dating. That was supposed to take place at midnight, just as 1999 turned into 2000. Well, Y2K didn't happen either. But 2000 did come. Civilization, such as it is, did remain, and I was still alive on planet Earth. The deep grief over Elijah's death was lessening by then. Stephanie's marriage in December 1999 and the arrival of our first grandchild in September 2000 helped me refocus on the future rather than be stuck in the past. The early years of the new century, although I experienced unexpected physical pain and surgeries, included new experiences and a much deeper understanding of God's powerful grace. And now for my book for such a time as this, chapter 27, Trained by Grace. At times, I have been deeply discouraged and nearly in despair over the discrepancy between what I believe that I understand and the way that I find myself living. It's a testimony to the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that I have continued to hunger and thirst and seek after the kingdom of God through the years in spite of my weaknesses. The spring of 2003 was one such difficult time. As Easter, which fell on April 20th that year, approached, I began to consider again Paul's message in Romans concerning the victory that Christ had won in his death and resurrection a victory that, according to Paul, provides the way of victory for God's people. I wanted to have the Lord's message for the people of Winchester Covenant, but I'm sure that my own need for encouragement and renewed hope also motivated me to read and meditate on Romans 5-8. through 8. That Easter, the primary word of hope I sought to proclaim was Paul's declaration that when we were baptized, we were baptized into Messiah, into Christ Jesus' death, and that we had been buried with him, thus we, that we had been buried with him by baptism into death in order that we could be raised with him so that we could walk in a new way of life. Romans 6, 4. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says that, I think, very clearly. 
According to Paul, we are set free from slavery to sin and death, and by the Spirit we've been set free from sin. During that sermon, I read Romans 6 to the church. Even though I was emphasizing the truth that we had been resurrected so that we could live a new way of life, I distinctly remember that words from verse 14 caught my attention, even though I could not stop and ponder those words right in the middle of delivering the sermon. The words were, We are not under law, but under grace. Over the next few days, that statement kept popping up in my mind. I would think about it for a bit and then turn my mind to other things. On the Wednesday morning following Easter, I headed north out of Winchester, drove through Paris, then headed northeast on US 68 on my way to the small town of Carlisle to visit several of my customers. Not far out of Paris, as I began my way through an area of horse farms, the implications of Paul's words finally got through to me. I am not under law. I am under grace. Immediately I was filled with nearly overwhelming joy. The morning spring sunlight seemed to be bursting on the fields. Fences, trees, and the grass and leaves seemed to sparkle in rich and brilliant green. Spring had awakened the land and spring had come to me. I wanted to get out of the car, jump a fence, and frolic in the fields. Romans 5 and 6 began to come alive in my thinking, with several statements standing out on my mind, even as I drove, as if they were in bold print. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Each of these quotes this time are from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That's chapter 5. Last part of 17. In chapter 5, 2021, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. And then again, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 14. One thought after another filled my mind. Grace is a dominion. Grace is my ruler. Hey, the Lord has taught me how to submit to authority. I can submit to grace. Then I remembered an exhortation from the epistle to the Hebrews. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16, as it's written in the New King James Version. The throne of grace. That's a possessive form in grammar, I thought. That could easily be read, come boldly to grace's throne. Grace is a person, I exalted. God is grace. Jesus, God who became a human being, the only Son of the Father, came full of grace and truth, says John 1.14. The thoughts came tumbling, and joy increased. Later at home, I decided to look up the Greek word for grace. It should have been obvious, but it never dawned on me that in Greek the words for joy, chara, and grace, charis, 
came from the same root word, a word that according to one Greek-English lexicon suggests the picture of lambs frolicking in the field. Man, I identify with those lambs. Not only am I under grace's authority, but grace's dominion, grace's kingdom, grace's realm is over all, over everything. Therefore, the Apostle Paul opened up Romans 5 by drawing this conclusion based on previous chapters that since we have been justified by faith through Jesus, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Our God and King is grace and His realm, His kingdom, in which may, we may now stand and live is described as grace. Therefore, Paul goes on, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Paul then describes the process by which in the realm of grace, God's glory is produced and made visible in our character. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 3-5. For several weeks I continued in that overflow of joy, a gift that I still treasure. But whether I experienced the same feelings of joy or not, what a difference it makes to know the Creator and King of the universe is grace personified. What a joy it is to know that I can come confidently before His grace's throne to receive mercy and grace. In April 2006, Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson worked together again in an annual conference sponsored by Brother Charles Ministry in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. The theme was reconciliation. It was the first time the brothers had worked together after being personally reconciled with one another. Many who had been involved with the so-called discipleship shepherding movement came to those meetings. I was privileged to be there. Since there's nobody on this podcast but us, I'm going to pause and do something unprofessional. I got really uh, into what I was reading about God's grace and trying to really communicate what I sense again of that joy that I had back then. And for whatever reason, all of a sudden my stomach started gurgling. I'm pretty sure this lapel mic must be picking it up and I'm really sorry. I paused and went and took a couple tums, even though my stomach doesn't feel upset. But I'm going to try again. I'm going to try to pick up again with this new section about Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson and their conference. In April 2006, Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson worked together again in an annual conference sponsored by Brother Charles Ministry. It was held in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. The theme was reconciliation. It was the first time the brothers had worked together after being personally reconciled with one another. Many who had been involved with the Discipleship Shepherding Movement came to those meetings. I was privileged to be there. 
Even though I had not been directly involved with the movement in its heyday in the 1970s, it still felt like a big homecoming. Reconciliation was the word for that season. A year before, when I was visiting my brother Wes in Newark, Ohio, I realized that Paul Petrie and the brothers in the Association of Covenant Ministries were having their annual family gathering nearby in downtown Columbus. Most of those brothers I had not seen since I had joined Fellowship of Christian Leaders a number of years before. Wes agreed to go over with me for a session. Even though there had been no estrangement and thus no need to be reconciled, I had not been in any of their meetings since 1996, just before Elijah died. After his death, I had begun to develop closer ties with Dennis Peacock and the leaders involved with him. Three things were important about that short visit to their get-together. First, I realized these brothers truly were friends whom I had missed more than I had realized. Second, I was thrilled to see how many sons came to that meeting with their fathers. Third, I saw that their emphasis was on the kingdom of God and I got a glimpse into the way the Lord had opened doors for various ones of them to make a kingdom impact in places all over the world, including reaching people high in government circles and people in Muslim nations. It was inspiring, and in the years since then, I've been blessed to be with this band of brothers a number of times. These renewed relationships have added strength, inspiration, and wisdom to me. Late in 2003 and on into 2004, I was privileged to have a part in helping to bring reconciliation to a relationship between brothers in Winchester, a relationship that had been broken 20 years before. The details of that story are for those involved with the broken relationships to tell. I became involved when a brother who had been involved in the controversy that led to that break had moved back to Winchester with his family and had begun to attend our worship gatherings. The relational split had occurred in a Winchester church with whom now I had meaningful ties. When it became clear that there was a willingness to seek reconciliation, all though there was not strong confidence that it could actually happen. That brother and two leaders from the church involved began to meet periodically to try to work out their differences. I met with them because of my connection with both, hoping that I could contribute something toward facilitating the potential reconciliation. Whether I should have or not, I experienced great stress in the days leading up to each meeting with those brothers. My digestive system, as was typical for me, seemed to take the brunt of the stress. I really don't know that the stress reconciliation caused my digestive issues, but I do know that I seem to be experiencing more pain in the days before each meeting. I know that there was spiritual warfare involved. Quite obviously, one of the last things the devil desires to is to see unity restored among God's people. Jesus prayed for our unity. The devil, whom Jesus called the thief, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 That enemy of God works hard trying to divide and conquer the people of God. After the surgery in 1997, I had two more surgeries, one in January 1998 to repair the repaired did you get that? To repair the repaired abdominal hernia, which had not held. 
and again surgery in October 1999 an emergency appendectomy after a few years of relatively good health by early 2004 I was frequently experiencing abdominal discomfort in late February I, February I ended up in the hospital with a very painful case of diverticulitis when another serious episode took place in early April the emergency room doctor who was a specialist in this area and a surgeon said I was danger in danger because another such attack could breach the wall of my colon and dump infection into other organs therefore in August I went back into the hospital to have the sigmoid colon removed the good news is that the reconciliation happened whether it had anything to do with my physical troubles only God knows for sure I do know this as in the past in difficult times the Apostle Paul's account of his struggle in 2nd Corinthians helped me endure with whatever measure of courage and faith I may have had during that time another account of Paul's sufferings took on new meaning for me here are Paul's words as translated by N.T. Wright in his the Kingdom New Testament a contemporary translation right now I'm having a celebration a celebration of my sufferings which are for your benefit and I'm steadily completing in my own flesh what is presently lacking in the king's afflictions on behalf of his body which is the church I became the church's servant according to the terms laid down by God when he gave me my commission on your behalf the commission to fulfill God's word this word declares the mystery that was kept secret from past ages and generations but now has been revealed to God's holy people God's intention was to make known to them just what rich glory this mystery contains out there among the nations and this is the key the king living within you as the hope of glory he's the one we are proclaiming we are instructing everybody and teaching everybody in every kind of wisdom so that we can present everybody grown up complete in the king that's what I'm working for struggling with all his energy which is powerfully at work within me you see I'd like you to know just what a struggle I'm having on behalf of you and the family in Laodicea and all the people who don't know me by sight I want their hearts to be encouraged as they're brought together in love I want them to experience all the wealth of definite understanding and come to the knowledge of God's mystery the mystery the Messiah the King he's the place where you'll find all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge that's the Kingdom New Testament translation of Colossians 1 24 to 23 to 2 1 24 to 2 3 as I read read and thought about this passage several things begin to stand out to me first Paul said his sufferings for for the benefit of the disciples in Colossae a few sentences later Paul said that he was struggling with all the kings that is Christ energy to present everybody grown and complete in the king in Christ 
King is the accurate way, a really accurate way to convey the biblical meaning of the Greek word Christos, or the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. So let me read that again. Paul said he was struggling, struggling with all the king's energy to present everybody grown and complete in the king. We hear that phrase in Christ, what's in the king. Then Paul clarified who he meant by everybody. The whole family of Jesus' disciples in Colossae, those in the neighboring city, Laodicea, which were cities and church communities which Paul had never visited in person. The gospel came to them through others while he was in Ephesus. And he was suffering for all who did not know him by sight. You and I are included. After all, we don't know Paul by sight. Somehow in the economy of God, Paul's struggles, internal struggles, were helping to accomplish God's work in other people's lives, including yours and mine. That then is what Paul meant when he made this incredible statement. I'm steadily completing in my own flesh that which is lacking on the, in the king's afflictions on behalf of his people. Wow! I began to consider the possibility that my own little sufferings could count for the good of someone else. I could ask for relief or healing or deliverance, and I should. After all, Jesus provided for it in his suffering and death. But what if it didn't come right away? Could I also offer myself and my struggles to God for the good of others? Paul did. When for Paul's own good, God sent a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to harass Paul, he asked for deliverance. Paul did. Three times he asked. Then God spoke to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9a. And what was Paul's response? Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9b-10. I have come to the conviction that I can and I should offer myself and my struggles, whether spiritual, emotional, or physical. Offer them in God's servant service for the benefit of others. In fact, I believe this is part of our calling to follow Jesus. How does it work? I don't know. I think it's part of what Paul called the mystery of Christ at work in us. No wonder Paul could declare, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any possible means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. 
still. I was not asking for another chance to suffer. Or was I? The chance to suffer physically it came with the surgery to remove the sigmoid colon in August 2004. For a couple weeks I appeared to be recovering well even though the wound from the incision was not closing correctly. So Patricia was again doing the twice daily cleaning, packing, and rebandaging procedure that we'd been through before. But all in all things were looking up. Then one morning, about two weeks after the surgery, at about 4.30, our dog Zeke began to whine and I got out of bed to take him outside. As I was walking through the family room to the garage door, things began to get dim and fuzzy, and I couldn't stand up. When I became aware again, I was on my knees, leaning over the coffee table. My wife was in a panic. panic. She couldn't rouse me at first, and she thought I'd fallen into a onto the surgical wound. She was trying desperately to call 911 but without her glasses was not being successful. At last she got through. By the time Patricia got from the phone to me, I was attempting to get up and she helped me into the nearby recliner. Apparently instinct had kicked in when I passed out and fell or more likely the Lord had spared me and my arms had slowed the fall. There was no damage to the incision. Soon the EMST, EMS team arrived. By then my head was clearing and I wasn't feeling bad, mostly just weak. As they checked my blood pressure and other things, they asked me some questions. I'd had surgery recently, I told them. No, I'd not been feeling bad, other than the evening before when I took some medicine because I thought my chest was getting congested, I said. They began to prepare to take me to the hospital. I resisted. They insisted. Something was not right and needed to be checked out, I was told. So into the ambulance and off to Clark Regional Emergency Room I went. In the ER, they did the usual protocols and then took me back to radiology where I had a chest x-ray followed by a CT scan. Back in the ER, someone, a nurse I think, said, You've had a pulmonary embolism. We'll be transferring you to the University of Kentucky. I didn't know how to spell embolism, let alone know what it meant. Oddly, I don't think I asked. Since I didn't know what it meant, I wasn't worried. After all, I wasn't feeling very bad. I did call my parents. When Dad answered, I told him I was in the ER and that they were saying I'd had a pulmonary embolism. The phone got really quiet for a while. I reassured Dad that I was feeling okay, even though I would be going to the hospital at the University of Kentucky. A few days later, I found out that my call had frightened Dad badly. Not only did he know the seriousness of a pulmonary embolism, but when he was 15, his own 49-year-old mother had died because of a pulmonary embolism following abdominal surgery. Although I'd heard that grandmother had had surgery and had died because of a complication after surgery, I didn't remember ever hearing it referred to as a pulmonary embolism or even a blood clot that had killed her. Surprisingly, as a pastor, I had never been called to the bedside of someone who'd had one either. I suppose because most of the people for whom I had provided pastoral insight were as young or as younger than me, were as young as, or younger than me. 
At UK, I got the full explanation. The blood clot had formed in my leg and the clot had broken loose, lodging in my pulmonary arteries. It never dawned on me to ask how the clots had gotten through the right side of my heart in order to reach the arteries to my lungs. In the early afternoon that day, they did an ultrasound on my legs in order to see if a clot was still there. To everyone's surprise, my legs were full of clots. The doctor became really serious. At any time, those clots may break loose and cause your death. You need to have a filter inserted in the main vein of your abdomen to slice up any that do break loose. Therefore, before long, I was taken into a room for a procedure. Because there were so many clots in the legs, they couldn't do the procedure in the normal way, inserting the filter by going in through the blood vessels in my vein, or my groin. Instead, the tech told me the filter would need to be inserted and put into place by going through the jugular vein. All the details are not necessary. I'll just say that I was given medication that was supposed to keep me from feeling pain for half an hour. UK is, however, a teaching hospital, and a new doctor needed to learn to do the procedure, so I was appointed to provide his training. It took him nearly 45 minutes to get it done. The last 10 or 15 minutes got quite uncomfortable as the pain medication wore off, I must say. You can bet, though, that I was sitting really, really still while my jugular vein was wide open and a wire was going down into my abdomen. A few weeks later, during a follow-up visit to my primary care doctor, I was examined by a resident who had been serving on the cardiology unit where I had been following the embolism. He told me in vivid terms that my case was special. He said, before I came into your room that first day, I looked at your CT scan from Clark Regional. I was amazed that you were alive. I had never seen such a big clot in a living patient. Then, when I walked into your room and saw you sitting up chatting, I couldn't believe my eyes. He said the left artery was completely blocked and the right artery was all but closed off with a clot about the size of a quarter. Well, how big's the artery, I responded. About the size of a quarter. After a pause to let that sink in, he continued his examination. Once again, I have no doubt that the Lord kept me here in this life for whatever his purpose may be, rather than to take me into the world to come. A few weeks later, it became clear that the incision simply was not healing correctly. After examining it, my surgeon, Dr. Paul Carney, discovered the infection that infection had bonded with the mesh that had been put in my abdomen back in 98 during the hernia repair. By 2004, it had been discovered that that particular brand of mesh was known to be associated with these kind of infection problems. There was no quick solution to the problem. My wound could not heal until the mesh was removed, and the mesh needed to be removed in order to deal with the infection. I couldn't have surgery to re remove the mesh because I was going to be on blood thinner for at least six months be certain that the blood clots resorbed, and in the end that wound remained open and twice daily cleaning routine had to be continued for more than seven months. 
At the end of April 2005, I was finally able to go into surgery again. Dr. Carney removed the mesh. Later, wisely I think, he told me that he had also dissected and removed as much scar tissue as he could. Because of the danger of infection and other complications, he needed to repair the hernia without mesh. There was one benefit to the surgery. A huge scar had developed in my abdomen where incisions had been made three times already. I lost a little weight, enabling Dr. Kearney to clean up much of the ugly scar when he closed it up for the fourth time. The incision healed correctly that time. Now I have a joke to tell if someone happens to see my belly. Some people have six packs, but I have two vertical courts, one on the right and one on the left. A year later, the hernia redeveloped. Another surgery was in the works so that another brand of mesh could be used to fix it. By this time, I was convinced that at least part of the reason I was prone to these recurring hernias and it was so, that it was so difficult for incisions to heal was the size of my overweight abdomen. I had gained back all the weight I lost before the 2005 surgery and had added more. After trying many diets over the years, I had absolutely no faith that I could take the weight off and keep it off. Patricia had been trying to get me to try Weight Watchers, but I had no hope. Then one day in June 2006, I seemed to hear the Lord say, if you will train yourself with this discipline, and I knew he meant Weight Watchers, then I will help you with the disciplines that really count. With that word, faith came. I started the Weight Watchers program, and weight began to come off. The following year, Dr. Carney was able to reinsert mesh and fix the hernia. Because of the truly significant weight loss, this time he was able to do the surgery laparoscopically in comparison to the others. It was a breeze. Now, I don't know all that God was doing to me through those years of physical difficulties. However, working on the discipline of weight loss was worth a great deal. Plus, Dr. Carney and I became friends over the course of three years. Not only is Dr. Carney one of the very best surgeons in his fields, but I have never had a doctor, and I've been blessed with some wonderful doctors, who was more accessible to me when I needed to contact him in between appointments. He took an interest also in theologically oriented books that I would bring to the office to read while waiting to see him. This led to some meaningful conversations and he wanted to receive the occasional humble perspectives that I would send out. In more recent years, Dr. Carney has had some big challenges of his own to face. Not only did his wife die from cancer, but he also went through much publicized legal difficulties related to his work. I was able to pray for him and still do from time to time. I hope the Lord used me to make some small contribution to his life, maybe even something that has helped him while facing his own issues. If so, then that alone would make the physical suffering I faced worthwhile. I've had no serious difficulties with those sorts of physical ailments since that time. That in itself is something that I have reason to believe is a blessing from God. The hernia repair that happened back in January 1998 had been done by Dr. Stacy Harbin, 
who was then a partner in the same office as Dr. Greiser, who by this time had left the practice to serve in medical missions. A few days after the surgery, just before I was released from the hospital, Dr. Harbin stopped by during his rounds. I have been thinking about your case, he said, planning how to get in the next time. Startled, I asked, are you saying another surgery is possible? Not possible, probable, he responded, rather bluntly it felt to me. It's likely that you'll need a colostomy at some point. Immediately, self-pity arose. I don't want to be an invalid, I groaned. Stop that, Dr. Harbin commanded. That's an insult to all those who live full lives with colostomies, including more young athletes than you would be able to guess. His rebuke, though blunt, was a blessing. Not only did it kick me out of the self-pity mode, but it led me to turn to the Lord to whom I offered myself, my health, and my future one more time. About 2002, the Alzheimer's disease that had begun in mom began to seriously limit her abilities, and the impact on both dad and her was huge. By 2005, Dad was having to curtail his ministry schedule a great deal. As the time passed, I made more and more trips to Circleville in order to support Dad and to help care for Mom, even during the time when I was dealing with my own physical issues. The brunt of helping Mom and Dad, however, fell upon my sister Debbie. Therefore, in 2005, while I was recovering from surgery, Dad and Mom moved 35 miles south from Circleville, Ohio, to Waverly, Ohio, where Debbie and her family lived. After I quit my job with Reese Office Products, my schedule was more flexible. I began to travel to Waverly as often as possible in order to help care for Mother and to offer what relief I could to Dad and Debbie. Usually, I would stay over for a night or two. One time, I stayed with Mom almost a week so that Dad could get away and minister in central Pennsylvania. Speaking frankly, the fact that mom had Alzheimer's offended me. I had not expressed anger to God about Elijah's death, but I did about mom's battle with Alzheimer. My complaint went like this. Mom had given her life to Jesus at age eight. She had been faithful to God ever since. She had weaknesses, as all of us do, but if there ever had been a more godly woman, I didn't know who it would be. I thought, Mom doesn't deserve to go out whimpering in a fetal position like my Aunt Ruby did. Mom deserves to go out in a blaze of glory. My anger was based on faulty thinking, of course. I knew the truth in my mind. None of us deserves anything but death because of sin. None of us is good enough to deserve God's mercy, let alone the blessing of dying in a blaze of glory. It is God's love that motivated the Father and Son to rescue us. It is God's grace alone that brings mercy to us. Unthinkingly, I had an illusion when it came to Mom. Although it took many months, I finally was able to fully surrender the illusion and the anger to the Lord and to begin to trust Father's plan. God had the last word, as it turned out. Under the influence of Alzheimer's, Mom was a roamer, a person who always was moving and doing something, even harmful things. She had to be watched virtually all the time. 
it was too much for Dad to handle, even with Debbie living only a mile away. In the summer of 2000, we made the difficult decision to move Mom into an Alzheimer's unit at Traditions, a nursing home in a senior citizen's uh, living situation called Bristol Village. Traditions was only a half mile from their home and it made it easy for Dad to be with her daily. In November 2007, Mom had a stroke which took her eyesight. From that point on, she became much less restless. While her memory was all gone, she knew Dad and she continued to remember many gospel songs. There are stories that I could tell about the testimony of her life was to those who worked in that unit. Then in November 2008, she was rushed to the emergency room with what appeared to be a heart attack. Dad and Debbie arrived quickly, and they were standing by Mom's bedside when a nurse entered to say that Mom had had a heart attack and likely would not make it. Years before, Mom and Dad had made the decision not to be kept alive in such a situation. Whether Mom heard and understood the nurse or not, we don't know. However, according to both Dad and Debbie, Mom looked to their left and declared, The Lord is here with me. Those were her last words. Less than a man minute later, she died. A blind woman with Alzheimer's saw and recognized the Lord as she lay dying. That's going out in a blaze of glory. There was another surgery which I didn't anticipate. Over a period of several years, I gradually developed a limp in my right leg. I adapted to it, just as a nuisance, without much concern, until the discomfort, mostly in my knee, became pain, which made it difficult to sleep. Around 2007, my daughters talked me into going to a chiropractor for treatment. A chiropractor? Oh yes, I had met one, Dr. Miller, Dr. Mark Miller the one who had given me a word from the Lord at El Rio Grande back in 1998. Dr. Miller's x-rays of my back showed that a compressed disc was causing pressure on a sciatic nerve. That seemed to account for the pain. Dr. Miller treated it with adjustments and decompression, which really made a difference for a while. Eventually, the pain began to grow again. Finally, in 2008, I told my primary care doctor, Dr. Charles Griffith, about the pain during my annual physical. After having x-rays taken in my lower body, Dr. Griffith said there was arthritis in my knee and in my hip too. Dr. Griffith sent me to Dr. Jeff Selby, a sports medicine doctor who specializes in joint replacements. My appointment with Dr. Selby came on the day mom died. I remember that day well since my mind, mind drifted to mom's death while I was driving on Midland Avenue near the Lexington Herald Leader Building on my way to the clinic. Next thing I knew, I heard a siren and saw red lights flashing in my rearview mirror. I pulled over as soon as I was in a safe place. Grief turns out to be no good excuse in the eyes of the law. The officer handed me a speeding ticket, a $175 fine. Dr. Selby talked with me and watched me walk across the room. Then he sent me to have more x-rays taken of my right hip. What about my knee? That's where the pain is greater, I protested. All right, we'll have pictures taken of the knee too, he said. 
Soon I was back in his office. Your right hip needs to be replaced, he concluded. Again, I asked, what about my knee? I think that if we replace the hip, you'll find the knee will be fine. There's some arthritis in your knee, but most of the pain is radiating from the hip, he replied. I was skeptical, but we scheduled surgery for January 5th. Dr. Selby was correct. The hip replacement took care of the pain and the limp. Ten days later, when I went to his office for the follow-up visit, he was very pleased with my ability to walk across the room without even using the cane that I was carrying. What's more, he was obviously pleased and a little surprised to see that my legs appeared to be exactly equal in length. Two days later, early in the morning, I passed out in our bathroom and once again found myself in the hospital because of a blood clot in the leg. This one we discovered was one huge clot from the groin all the way down my right leg. The good news is that if any of it broke loose, that filter worked. There was no embolism this time. Actually, I might have helped the blood clot develop. I was so un intent on sticking to my Weight Watchers diet that I even refused fattening hospital food following surgery in favor of a chef's salad from the deli. Tests showed that I had become now malnourished as well as dehydrated I never considered that my body might need more sustenance to do the work of recovery. The blood clot slowed progress a little, but by July I felt better than I'd felt in years. I feel like I've gained 10 years of my life back, I exclaimed often. On Sunday, March 8, 2009, while I was still recovering, the Holy Spirit spoke to me once again about grace. That Sunday, I was listening to Dirk Goodrich, a brother in our church, give a message on prayer. He had my full attention, and I was looking up each of the scriptures as he gave the references and made his comments. All of a sudden, a thought intruded emphatically. The grace of God teaches us to say no. The words were as clear as if Dirk had said them. However, he'd said nothing about grace. I immediately recognized that the word I had heard was from Scripture, but I didn't immediately remember where to find it. The word was so clear and strong that I ignored Dirk and began to look for the reference. Eventually, my memory kicked in and I realized that it must have been from a passage in Titus, which I looked up. The Bible I was carrying that Sunday said something similar, but not those exact words. That, the Bible I was reading that morning said, I think it was the ESV, said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. As before, when the word about being under grace came to me, so it was this time. The next, for the next few days, that word kept coming back to mind. The grace of God teaches us to say no. Finally, I started looking through the various translations of Scripture in my library, and I found it, ironically, in one of my least favorite modern translations, the New International Version. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very, are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus 11 to 14. The grace of God has appeared. It teaches us. Grace not only teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but grace also teaches us how to live. By the way, I'll add here just in case, how did the grace of God appear? It appeared in Jesus Christ, the Logos, full of grace and truth. Grace teaches us how to live. So I say again, the grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Having seen that several other translations use the word train rather than teach, it occurred to me that I should look up that word, Greek word. I'd been aware for a long time that the Greek word disdoskalia, dis dis I'm getting the translation all wrong, which is translated doctrine or teaching in Titus 2.1 and 2.10. I was aware of that word because it had been eye-opening when I noticed that the word doctrine was used concerning the practical everyday life instruction found in Titus 2, not referring to doctrine in some kind of sense of theological concepts, which is the way I had always previously thought about it. Sound doctrine, therefore, has to do with the way we live, according to Titus 2. But this Greek word, trans, this Greek word translated teaches or trains in 2.12 turned out to be another word altogether, the word paiduo, which I discovered meant to train, teach, correct, chastise. This word is not about teaching in the sense of imparting information, but rather about teaching in the sense of disciplinary instruction. I found multiple instances where this Greek word is commonly translated by forms of, of discipline and correction in modern translations of Hebrew, Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. It's also the word that Pilate used when he wanted to teach Jesus a lesson by chastising or flogging or punishing him, by doing him, and then releasing him in Luke 23, 22. Now think about it. Grace rules. The joy of that lesson was stirred as I remembered the Lord showing me that one. Now I was seeing more. Grace teaches. Grace trains. This grace is not impersonal. Rather, it's our God, His grace, who has adopted us as His sons and daughters and therefore trains us in the way to live. Grace is not only my king, grace is my spiritual trainer. Grace is my father. The same God, God who had told me 20 years earlier, I like you, boy, was now helping me at age 60 to see more of his fatherly love and care. It was about this time also that the Holy Spirit gave me an unexpected answer to my heart's cry. Lord, show me the church of the next generation. Since 2001, that had become my frequent prayer. In 2009, the Spirit responded clearly and pointedly. No, 
I'm not going to give you the vision for the church of the next generation. Old men dream dreams and young men see visions. I will give the vision for the church to those who will build it. This answer has put things into a different and more proper perspective. My prayer changed to Lord, raise up young men and give them the vision for your church in their generation. Give them the ability to bring many of their generation into living that life. Along with that changed prayer, I have greatly longed to contribute at least something to the lives of some of those who will receive God's vision. Now, I'm far more at peace with the small part I have played in God's big purposes. When I view things from the proper perspective, it's a privilege beyond words just to be included in God's family at all. How much more of a privilege it is to have even a small part in His purposes. Compare it to being in a movie, for example. What if I had had a bit part or even been an extra in some well-known movie? Wouldn't that be something? How much wonder, more wonderful that God would make a place for me, any place at all, in His family and His purposes. As Eugene Peterson translated the Song of David, Oh yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of, all my, li of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. Psalm 139, 13-16 in the message. I wish I could sing that. Man, what a... The Apostle Paul added, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Ephesians 2.10, New Living Translation. Still, it often takes some time, some reminding, and some disciplining for me to remember that it's grace who is directing my life and training me. It is grace who before time wrote the script. Quite often, I don't like the training regimen. It does take some effort and sometimes some failure before I get my perspective right. Grace has brought me this far and grace will lead me on. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I hope you're as encouraged by the truth that's shared in this chapter as I am. I'm going to keep on keeping on. I pray that you will too. In the words of a title of my friend Paul Clark's song, Let's Finish Strong. Please join me again for the next episode when I'll read the final chapter of the written story of my spiritual journey. The book is finished. The journey's not. Lead on, Spirit of Grace.